Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. AI fails all the time. Not what you're expecting to hear at the beginning of an AI podcast. It's true. Talk to any data science team and they'll tell you sometimes AI models fail, just like everything else in the world fails sometimes. But that's where today's guest comes in. Yaron Singer is co-founder and CEO of Robust Intelligence, a company founded in 2019 out of research Singer was doing in his other job as the Gordon McKay Professor of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at Harvard University. Robust Intelligence, RI for short, has developed a sort of AI firewall that wraps around a company's AI models and protects it from making mistakes by constantly stress testing these models. If you're not familiar with AI stress walls and are wondering how an AI firewall can be a thing, fear not. Yaron is here to tell us all about it, so let's get to it. Yaron Singer, thank you so much for taking the time to join the NVIDIA AI podcast. No, awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Great. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's a lot in there with the research you were doing at Harvard and the company coming out of it. And it's only been a few years, but I understand you just closed a Series B round a couple of months ago. So congratulations on that. Why don't you start us at the beginning, core product and tech-wise, and tell us what Robust Intelligence does and why it's important for folks out there working with AI and data science and machine learning. Absolutely. So yeah, what we do at Robust Intelligence is we, on a technical level, what we do is we eliminate AI model failures. And what do we mean by that? If we, we, we think of an existing AI model, we know that input is coming into that model and we know that model is, you know, is uh, meant to you know, produce a prediction. You know, but, but oftentimes, for various reasons, these predictions come out wrong. So what we do in the company is we, we're building uh, what we call an AI firewall, which is a piece of software that wraps around a model to basically prevent that model from making mistakes. So that software stands between the data and the model, looking at the, coming in, the, the data coming in and basically allowing to monitor and correct it when they're coming into the model. And so effectively, it's firewalling off, let's say, unchecked or potentially erroneous or failed AI predictions from getting out into the production environment? Yeah, that's exactly right. And generally speaking, we're agnostic to the source of these errors. But yeah, but basically, like, basically what we see ourselves doing is we see ourselves as like protecting the model from anything that can cause it to make a mistake. So some things are, that can cause a model to make a mistake is a distributional drift. Something else could be like an unseen categorical. It could be that if you're in a world of images, it could be that an image is inverted or taken under like kind of lower resolution or things like that. Basically, whatever the reason is, our firewall is out there to correct the data coming into the model. And how does the firewall know if what's coming out of the A model is what you want or if it's actually indicative of a failure of some sort? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we do uh, what we call you know, training of, of the, the AI firewall. And the way that we do that is we do that through stress testing, right? So basically what we do is we take in data and access to the model. Uh, itself uh, to an existing model, and we test the data and we test the model, and and we do that on a you know uh, before the model goes into production, we we also do that on a kind of a on a continuous basis. So in in that in in kind of like in testing that we sort of see the the way that kind of different errors can affect the model, right? And then based off of the way that different errors can affect the model, we um, we basically train this AI firewall classifier. And so maybe you can walk us through uh, an example or two of you know whether it's research-based or actual uh, customer companies using your tech, where might this be applied and, uh, you know, what, what might the outcome be? Or I guess I'm thinking, what, what sorts of disasters uh, is your AI firewall able to uh, avert? 
so basically, um, you know, like the, the the disaster is basically like any any disaster that can cause from from these uh, you know mild failures. But um, I'll give you some concrete examples that we ran into. So um, one example was uh, in the world of, of fraud detection, there was an issue where the models were kind of producing. Uh, every now and then, the models were producing kind of these prediction outputs that that seemed a little bit a little bit off, right? Mm-hmm. And it was very very difficult to detect, and nobody really knew why. But once they once they uh, they did they did a trial within like I think within minutes they 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 discovered the reason for that, and the reason was what the firewall picked up on was this case where part of the features that were coming in were capitalized. And okay. some and some weren't. So this is like this is a case where they're collecting kind of like data about country codes, right? Which affected the you know the model prediction. And then right. and then when, when when country codes were not capitalized, that really affected the you know the prediction of the model. And 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 the reason it happened is is not, is not because you know there there's a mean adversary on the other side. It was just the the kind of the, they were collecting data from different sources, right? According you know to just slightly different formats, and it just had a you know kind of this major effect on the performance of the model. So RI is working with, you know, a bunch of well-known companies in the space and and a bunch of other important companies, maybe not so well-known to the outside world. But point being, you guys are doing this in the real world and seems like with great success. Is this a um, a need that wasn't previously filled before RI or is it something that uh, you saw, you know, maybe saw other folks doing, but it wasn't quite working and then you kind of unlocked, uh, you know, found that last puzzle piece that kind of unlocked the way to do this in a, in a reliable way. Yeah. I, I think there's no one answer, right? <laughs> I think part right? Like, so, so I'll try to give all of them. No, no good origin story has only one, you know, starting point. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. But I think I, you know, like part of it is the fact that like, you know, when you think about it, machine learning as an engineering discipline is, a, you know, is a very young discipline, right. Mm-hmm. When we think about it, like in terms of, you know, the, what we're asking it to do in production. Right. I, I would say that, you know, maybe less than 10 years ago, outside of, you know, a handful of companies, right, there were not a lot of organizations that were you know, using machine learning models really in production, right? And, and and certainly, you know, fewer that were using it for kind of like automated decision making in real time and whatnot, right? And mm-hmm. and those, you know, the few companies that were using it, you know, Google's one of them and where, where, where I was fortunate, you know, enough to, to, you know, to work at, they had their own infrastructure, right? Their own development tools. But also, the, even there, the requirements were were kind of like far more modest. I'd say. I think part of it is you know maturity of AI, right? That obviously Nvidia is contributing a lot to, right? And and the kind of the usage of it. I think that that's a big part of it. The other part of it is that I think that some of this stuff does exist, but in a very I think primitive fashion, right? And let me give you an example. So, you know, if I look at like um you know TensorFlow or PyTorch, or I look at like a you know an open source library like like scikit-learn, mm-hmm. right? There is some protection that we're already putting on models, right? So, right. for example, like if there is something like let's say like a missing feature could be exchanged for like a null value, right? Right. Or uh, you know, kind of like you know, very basic things like that, right? So it's kind of like I think kind of the the basic idea I think kind of lives and 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 we use the basic idea, and that that I think kind of is independent of robust intelligence, right? But I think kind of like what, you know, what is unique about robust intelligence is that, you know, I think that the AI firewall takes this kind of pre-processing to like this whole new level. And the reason that I can take it to this whole new level is because it has context about the model and the data and the whole way in which we, you know, we train, you know, this AI firewall. So that, you know, rather than exchanging a missing feature to like just, you know, say a null value, we can replace it with 
the value that you know would would um, would basically give us the best uh, accuracy uh, of the model. So I think part of it is like the world of you know machine learning models of production is you know this whole discipline is relatively young, and 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 the other part of it is that you know I think that the the basic constructs and the ideas. Uh, exist independently of robust intelligence, but I think that robust intelligence is just taking this to like a whole new level. Right. That makes sense. So your co-founder uh, is a former student of yours from Harvard. Is that right? Yes. He has uh, traumatic memories of that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so so peel back the curtain as much as you want, but we won't ask for the, the most traumatic stories. How did the collaboration happen? How did the idea, um, you know, start to turn uh, what I assume was research at school into an idea for a company? Yeah. So I've been, I feel like I've been on this quest for, I'm embarrassed to say, but I think it's been on the order of like 10 years or so. So for me, this was like when, as I was, you know, um, working more and more on on, uh, on on machine learning, you know, what I came to discover is I came to discover like just how sensitive, you know, machine learning models are, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, when when you're working at a company like Google and, uh, and you're designing algorithms at Google and but your input to the, you know, the, the input to your, your, your algorithms are coming from machine learning models. You very much care about the sensitivity of these, you know, these machine learning models to like errors in data, right? Because right. that, you know, greatly affects the, you know, the, the output for your algorithms. And, and this is when I really kind of, you know, got very, you know, like interested in this, I think kind of intellectually, academically, right? Um, and, and really kind of started drilling down on the sensitivity and the vulnerability of, of machine learning models to these kind of like small changes, right? And, and what we can then do about it, right? So I, I've been, I think, kind of in a pretty long quest, um, you know, on this. And in the beginning, it was about like theoretical foundations and just like understanding what is it that, you know, machine learning models can and cannot do? And what are the conditions in which they, you know, they can produce like predictions that we could use? And I think kind of from that, you know, sort of transition into like designing algorithms that be, you know, robust to kind of like changes and, you know, and that's been kind of like a, I think kind of like the main theme of my research uh, during my time at Harvard. And I was fortunate enough to like kind of work with Kojin and, and kind of like, you know, discover this kind of superhuman capabilities. And, and as we we're working on this, it's this is, like this we is were, your, not to interrupt, this is your co-founder, Kojin yes. Oshi- Oshiba? That's right. Yeah. And we wrote, we wrote papers together. And, and I think we, you know, as we were doing this, we just felt like the, you know, taking it to the next level is not, for us, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't writing another paper. Yeah. Uh, for us, taking it to the next level was let's, let's build a product and let's, let's talk to companies and let's see, you know, where the real problems are. And let's see how we can really have people validate this idea and, and use it. That that's been part of, like I think the, the thing that's been most exciting for us is how do we take this like you know deep technology that we've developed you know over you know for for the past several years right and and how do we make it accessible to uh, for organizations to use to like right. you know eliminate risk from from the from their you know um, their their AI efforts. What was that transition like? It sounds like you had, if I've got the timeline right, you worked at Google uh, doing uh, postdoc research prior to um, taking your position at Harvard? Yes. Yeah. So you so, had at least some, and I don't mean to interrupt you, sorry, just what I'm getting at is you had at least some experience, you know, working, uh, doing this stuff, not in academia, but in the business world and the tech industry, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I don't know Kojin's background, but I'm just kind of wondering how that transition, uh, you know, was and is um, going from, you know, we don't want to write another paper. We want to build a product. We want to work with companies doing stuff, applying this technology and and making it work. 
so yeah, I think I think we you know we both have experience in the industry, and 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 Kojin was also kind of like a, a co-founder of Tokyo branch of of a, of a data science company, and and so so I think that he had some experience there. But yeah, for me, I I, I actually I worked on a startup when you know during grad school, so um, you know the startup life was not I think it was it was familiar to me. You know, I think that that trans- transition felt like like an evolution. I think of you know more than anything, it just felt like you know. I think kind of it started from working on really the theoretical foundations and understanding the limitations of what's possible, what's not possible, like like proving it, and you know, and then kind of transitioning into the kind of like into like designing algorithms based off of you know kind of like our understanding, and then these algorithms again from like kind of uh, from theoretical constructs to like actually apply them and you know and have them scale, you know, and then it just felt okay, that's and now the the next what what's next right, and then the next phase was like okay, now that we've now we build these algorithms and we scale them. Let's you know, let's take them to, you know, to, to actual customers and, and see yeah. and see what that's like. So I think it just felt like natural step in the kind of like a natural evolutionary step. I think. No, it makes a lot of sense, and it makes me realize. I think I'm showing my age, where you know, uh, <laughs> students don't work little side jobs anymore to make ends meet. They start companies in their spare time while you're doing your doctorate. You know, <laughs> you're on your fourth uh, you company know, before you get your t- PhD. T- tell me about it. As a Harvard professor, tell me about it. Right. <laughs> you know, the number of students that I had to convince not to drop out of Harvard to, uh, you know, build the next thing. I can't even imagine. It's like athletes going pro, you know, when they're when they're eighteen. Our guest today is Yuran Singer. Yuran is the co-founder and CEO of Robust Intelligence, uh, a company that is uh, building technology that stress tests AI models. They've got a what we're calling a an AI firewall that wraps itself around your company's AI models and does sort of pre-processing and making sure that the models are coming out with accurate predictions that sort of make sense and that bad data isn't getting out into your production environment. If I've summarized it all correctly, you're on. I want to kind of change gear. You've talked obviously about your background a little bit uh, and you mentioned that, you know, you've been on this particular quest for around 10 years now and that the whole field really, as you rightly said, you know, is still very young. How did you get interested in the field in the first place? Have you always been uh, into, you know, technology, computers, but also, you know, the theoretical aspects of it and, and data itself? Or was this kind of something you you came upon, you know, later in your growing up? Yeah. Well, first of all, like, I'm, you know, I um, I, I have like these sort of academic uh, roots. My my dad is a double E professor at Tel Aviv University. I'm originally from Israel. And uh, and my mom's also, you know, she she's a, a physics PhD and a researcher. So, I think you know the the odds were stacked against me. I was interested in um, in algorithms, and I started more as in the world of theoretical computer science. And and my my advisor at, at Berkeley was Christos Papadimitriou, who like people kind of <laughs> consider to be like one of the greats of complexity yeah. theory. So I think that was kind of my I think kind of my origin. But I I've always been like pushing very hard and very interested in in understanding like what what are the implications of our, you know this theory in the real world. And for me, I kind of like transitioned more and more into the world of practical and applied through that. And specifically with machine learning, for me, I kind of saw myself more in the world of algorithms. But when I was, you know, working my own startup and later on at Google, what I realized is I realized that basically like all the um, all the algorithms that we're designing, we're actually designing them based off of predictions that are coming from machine learning models, right? Mm-hmm. The most concrete example I can give you is you, you can think of like AdWords at Google, right? Um, when you're designing algorithms, you're what you're doing is you're getting predictions from a machine learning model that's telling you what's the likelihood of 
somebody clicking on a certain ad. Right. So as you're designing kind of like your most, your best and most efficient algorithms, the consequence of this algorithm like depends on the quality of the machine learning model. And, and, and then you realize that you can design like the world's best algorithm, but if the, if the prediction of the machine learning model is somewhat, you know, wrong, or, you know, it's like sensitive to kind of like small perturbations or changes, then it really doesn't matter like kind of how good your algorithm was. Right, right. And then that's really when I kind of took a very deep interest in, in machine learning and understanding how to make it like how to design robust machine learning algorithms and kind of, you know, where they could fail. And um, that's really how I got into this. So I'm wondering, and, and maybe for, uh, I'm sure some of our audience is, is familiar, but perhaps some aren't, when you're talking about working with data that's coming out of a, a machine learning model that um, at its best is is predicting something and those, anything, any any minor things that might be wrong with, with the data in the first place can kind of set off this chain effect. Are you generally working in situations where there's data just coming out of one model or is there ever sort of a a series of models where, you know, maybe the, the something went wrong at the beginning and it's kind of gotten through multiple iterations and then, you know, your algorithms come in. And I'm just kind of wondering in different situations how much you have to change your approach to, you know, root out where the data went wrong in the first place or if that doesn't even matter because um, your approach to the problem and the way you're able to to handle it kind of just deals with the data as you get it if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. And that's when you know you're on the NVIDIA podcast, when, when you get, you know, uh, questions. <laughs> I just uh, I just really, I wanted to say the word recursion loop, and I was pretty sure I was going to use it incorrectly. So I, I went with the long, the long complicated version <laughs> instead. No, no, that's, that's a phenomenal question. So basically, um, we do both, and I'll explain. What we're seeing, uh, I think, kind of very much resonates with with what you're describing. So there are actually quite a few organizations, right, where it's not that there's like one machine learning model, right, that is getting data from, you know, from from the outside world and producing a prediction, right? right. It's actually a pretty complex system right, where you have a lot of signals, right, that are coming into these models, right, from kind of different sources. And some of these signals are machine learning models in themselves. They feed into each other, right? And and then and kind of like what what you're saying is that there's sort of like this could be like this recursion loop of you know of errors and um, basically like when when I say both like what we do is we build our product in a way that is like extremely modular and it allows you to look at the final outcome of this sort of ensemble model and just sort of like look at that and and, and protect it at that level mm-hmm. but it's also modular enough that you can basically put an AI firewall in front of every, you know, in front of every model, you know, that right. goes into this ensemble. And then you can basically uh, monitor and, and and protect the inputs as they're feeding in, in this entire ensemble. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that this modularity is is very important because like the problem that you're describing is, is a problem that you see in a lot of organizations, especially the ones that are, you know, a little bit more mature with their adoption of, of AI. Right. Oh, that makes sense. So what are you guys working on now or what does the future hold? We're, we're taping this in early February. Uh, and I mentioned up top, you guys closed a round of funding at the end of last year, uh, according to the reports I read. So congratulations on that. What does the, the roadmap look like? Or, you know, alternatively, is there a, a problem you're chewing on or kind of a breakthrough you're anticipating that uh, you're excited to talk about? Yeah, I, I think, you know, like, uh, honestly, the thing that, I, that, that I'm just generally excited about is building the company, 
there's a lot of creative energy uh, in the company and, and a lot of growth. And, and, and that's something that I'm extremely excited about. I think from a, you know, kind of like the product perspective, there's just so much more work, you know, for us to do. We sort of see ourselves as building, you know, the world's uh, first and only uh, AI firewall and, and kind of, and building that is, is such a, it's a huge challenge, right? Uh, you know, the, the kind of like the, the ability to work on, you know, the, the ability to make predictions on, on, on what sort of data points are going to like fool the model and how, and how to correct them. And then doing this across like, you know, all these different modalities is uh you know is, is a very hard task yeah um currently one of the biggest things that we'll see coming out uh very soon is we'll see the version of the product for images that is going to come out uh in you know in production so that's Great. something that uh, we're excited about yeah yeah and a lot of other really awesome features that i think our customers are going to love before we wrap up here because you mentioned the new, the new version supporting images is there a certain type of of data i don't know if that's the right way to phrase it but i think you know what i'm asking that poses either, you know, more difficult or just sort of weird, quirky challenges as compared to other data types? Absolutely. One of the most challenging data types that we've encountered for us has been basically speech data. Mm-hmm. Um, so speech data and speech models are, I think they're, they're extremely difficult. And the reason is there, there are just so many artifacts and, and the, you know, the model could be picking up on, on so many different things like kind of background noise. And, and we found that to be um, something that you know is extremely challenging. There's a lot of demand for it, so that's good, and and you know we're we're working hard on that. But at the same time, you know it's, I think it's like a very challenging data type. Right. Well, that's that's what makes it exciting, or or so I'm told by the folks who start companies that solve really complex problems. So, you're on for folks who would like to learn more about what RI does and and what you're up to. I know there's a website. Is that the best place to go? Yeah, there is a website and uh, we hold uh, webinars every so often. So, um, you know, there, there's a way to sign up for those on the website. And, you know, uh, always happy to chat and meet you. Great. So it's all from robustintelligence.com. Perfect. Yaron Singer, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about uh, the stuff you're doing. It's a big task building an AI firewall, but uh, it's it's very, very cool stuff. And it was great to hear you talk a little bit about it. Um, so best of success with everything you're up to. And uh, maybe we can check in again down the road and, and see how robust intelligence is uh, is evolving. Thank you very much. <laughs>